Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the assassination by an Israeli drone of a top Hamas official in Beirut, which is bound to inflame an already tinderbox situation that could lead to a war between Israel and Hezbollah, since the target, Saleh Aruri, was in effect the Hamas ambassador to Hezbollah with close ties to Iran. Joining us is Thanasi Kambanis, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Center for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he worked as a journalist based in Lebanon, and his books include A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. Then we'll investigate the well-funded movement underway led by the man who has already stacked the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary to create a test case to tear down Thomas Jefferson's wall between church and state by reversing the Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment. Joining us is Paul Collins, Professor of Legal Studies and Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose research focuses on understanding bias and inequality in the American legal system, particularly in the behavior of actors like judges, legislators, presidents, the media, and interest groups. His books include Friends of the Supreme Court, Interest Groups, and Judicial Decision-Making, Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change, and The President and the Supreme Court going public on judicial decisions from Washington to Trump. Then finally, we'll explore the frightening similarities between Germany in the early 1930s and the U.S. in 2024, with Trump and his followers, who are about a third of the vote, as Hitler's Nazi party was in the last democratic election in 1933, when German democracy died and dictatorship began. Joining us is Benjamin Carter Hett, a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of Burning the Reichstag, Crossing Hitler, and Death in the Tiergarten, and The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, How Hitler Took the World to War. His latest book is The Nazi Menace, Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin, and the Road to War. And we will discuss his article in the Los Angeles Times, 2004 could be the year America fends off dictatorship or invites it in. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. 
And joining us now is Thanasi Kambanis, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Centre for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he has worked he worked as a journalist based in Lebanon, and his books include A Privileged to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thanasi Kambanis. Glad to be speaking with you, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Thanasi. And today uh, in South Beirut, a top Hamas official, Saleh al-Ruri, who's supposedly in charge of West Bank operations of Hamas, although apparently he's been actually operating in effect as Hamas's ambassador to Hezbollah, he was killed by an Israeli drone along with a couple of of his uh, lieutenants right in front of the Hamas headquarters in South Beirut. So, first of all, why are these guys operating in the open? And two, is this likely to inflame an already tinderbox situation? Yeah, I mean, these are uh, that that second question: is this going to set off a wider war? Is the is the main question that I'm focusing on? Uh, I'll answer. Your first question first, which is, uh, you know, Hamas and, and Hezbollah and, and groups like it function as sort of normal state-like entities all over the Arab world, right? So even uh, at this moment of, um, you know, the sort of heightened heightened tensions, Hamas has an office. It's where journalists go and interview them. It's where uh, diplomats or other pol- political figures would go and, and meet with Hamas officials. And we've had lots of, uh, you know, quite open and public meetings uh, with Hamas in, in Beirut uh, since the October 7th uh, uh, attacks and, and the war that followed. Uh, now, uh, why would this particular figure be be out in the open? I mean, that that is um, uh, a bit of a of a puzzling question. But I, I guess uh, Hezbollah, and, uh, which operates the the security blanket in southern Beirut, uh, must have mistakenly believed that Israel would not uh, strike targets. Uh, in inside Beirut, uh, that of course was was proven mistaken today. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of the the real worrying question about how how dangerous is this uh, for Lebanon, the region, uh, for an escalation that brings the United States directly into the war? I think this is uh, tremendously dangerous, but it's also, in my view, something to be expected. Uh, uh, and, and what do I mean by that? Um, those of us who are uh, critical of the way Israel has been uh, waging its war in Gaza would say one of the central problems here is the indiscriminate nature of Israel's use of force, right? In Gaza, they're just bombing. It's hard to even think of these as targets. They're just sort of uh, wide-scale wide uh, bombing that looks like collective punishment. Now, what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is to actually do some something purposeful that pursues uh, the people responsible for the October 7th attacks. Uh, and um, in some ways, it's harder to fault Israel for doing exactly what its critics have, have pushed for it to do, which is engage in proportionate targeted response. You know, and it's and it's hard to see Saleh Aruri as a uh, I mean, he's not a civilian. He's not a child. He is a uh, Hamas security official who is reportedly one of the planners of the October 7th attacks. Uh, now, on the other hand, he was located in a civilian area in a foreign country that's not 
currently uh, involved in the war. Uh, so there, there is a real risk of, uh, uh, of this provoking an escalation. And I'm sure we'll talk, we'll talk more about that on the segment. Uh, but those are, those are the sort of uh, risks and um, sort of intentions in play here. And one other thing to note, so Hezbollah uh, gave a statement uh, after this assassination um, and uh, what Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, said was that the uh, you know the, the the crime will not pass without a response, uh, and this day will be memorable for what follows. Uh, and I hear in that statement the kind of hedging uh, that in the past uh, has signaled not escalating. Right? It's the kind of rhetorical response Hezbollah gives when they want to say like, okay, like we're keeping score. We're not going to let we're not going to let this go by without doing something. And, you know, of course, they will do something. They, they do something. They've been doing something every day since October 7th. It does not sound like the words of, of, of a movement that is now preparing to embark on an all out war. But Hezbollah's leader, Nasrallah, has already set a red line, hasn't he, since, by saying that he would ret- retaliate against any Israeli targeting of Palestinian officials in Lebanon. Well, I mean, he's he's set his red lines. Uh, I, I read this a little bit differently than other analysts. Uh, I think uh, uh, Nasrallah, uh, kind of like Bill Clinton uh, was when he was president of the United States, uh, is, a ve- is a very legalistic and skilled orator, right? So uh, charismatic, inspiring to his followers in the way he talks. Also, a little bit slippery and hard to pin down in what precisely he has committed to do. Um, and as an example, I'll remind uh, you and, and your listeners that um, Ahmad Mughniya, the top uh, Hezbollah military planner, uh, was was assassinated by Israel in 2008 at a residential complex in Damascus. Um, that was a big deal uh, for Hezbollah, and there was uh, huge events uh, around his funeral and very elaborate uh, promises to retaliate uh, for that assassination. And it has been uh, I think 15 years, and there has not been yet a retaliation uh, for that for that assassination strike. Um, and that's that's the kind of wiggle room that I'm talking about. So there there is a case where um, you know I mean Hezbollah has been robustly engaging with with Israel as a military force. Um, it has uh, engaged in strikes and counter strikes. Uh, it has not uh, done anything that would qualify as a a retaliation uh, in kind or, or in scope. For the Mughni assassination. So in this case, uh, I would wager uh, that Hezbollah is going to look for ways to frame whatever it does tonight, tomorrow, or the next day as a somewhat adequate but measured and restrained retaliation. Uh, you know, it has already uh, in the back and forth since October 7th, that has killed some uh, uh, Israeli military officers, for example, uh, in, in northern Israel, uh, which fall kind of within the the acceptable range uh, for both sides of of military response and counter response uh so i would guess it will do something it will try to do something like that uh and frame it as uh an appropriate uh appropriate tip for tat uh and i do think it will it will try very hard not to do something that provokes an outright uh full israeli military response and that by the way is uh is one of my big questions is whether whether Israel is actually hoping uh, to 
um, to catalyze an all-out war. There have been comments from various Israeli officials uh, to the to, 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 that, that suggest now, uh, at this time, that Israel is fully mobilized, that it's already bearing the brunt of international condemnation. Now is the time to go ahead and uh, uh, engage fully with Hezbollah uh, with, in the beliefs that it will be able, that Israel will be able to somehow uh, majorly reduce Hezbollah's military strength. And that's a terrifying prospect, I think, for certainly for Lebanese, uh, for me as an analyst of, of, of the region and, and regional dynamics. I, I think that's a really risky, I mean, aside from the terrible human toll it will entail, I think it's incredibly dangerous. I think that's the kind of uh, escalation that could bring in the United States, could bring in uh, you know, even more uh, involvement from the Houthis and shipping lanes of the Red Sea and so on, uh, maybe even draw Iran indirectly. So these are are really that that's a really risky move. But I do think that's uh, that's something we have to, to keep an eye on and worry about. Well, already a couple of weeks ago, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met with his Israeli counterpart and warned them not to provoke Hezbollah. So it must be at least something that the U.S. side is concerned about. And Netanyahu is saying this war is going to go on for months. I mean, this is a part of a pattern that I just find unbelievable, how the U.S. does not control its own political destiny. You know, Sirhan Sirhan decides to kill Bobby Kennedy, and we end up with Nixon, and the Ayatollah Khomeini makes a deal with the Reagan people, and they hold back the hostages, and we end up with, with Reagan instead of Carter. And now... You've got Netanyahu and Hamas dragging the, uh, Biden down to the point where we may end up with Trump. I mean, this is crazy. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if you if you want to talk about the, the political consequences in the United States, I mean, this is it is uh, Biden's poor choice uh, to uh, bear hug uh, not just Netanyahu, but the entire uh, policy of this Israeli government to wage the war the way it's waging. Um, that is, uh, I I fear you're right that 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 it this this kind of this bad choice uh, helps usher in uh, the next Trump term. Um, but it's also bad in its own right, even if it doesn't. Right, even if somehow. Biden survives uh, politically and, and wins re-election after uh, after making the choices he's made uh, with Israel since October seventh. Uh, we we are we're, we're we're seeing I think a lot of terrible fallout. For, I mean, to begin with, you know, and I'll always return to this: the uh, the cataclysmic loss of life, livelihood, and a political horizon uh, for seven million Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, but uh, I mean, imagine the level the level of, of fear and instability now being experienced all around the region where every day uh, uh, tens of millions of people are wondering whether or when the war is going to come to them. Um, you know, is there going to be uh, an, an all out war involving Lebanon in which, again, millions of people are displaced and, and their homes destroyed uh, in a repeat of the 2006 war? but uh, uh, presumably much worse. Um, is the conflict going to escalate uh, such that international shipping uh, becomes untenable around Yemen, which we've already seen uh, the Houthis are able to create really major, major problems on behalf of the, you know, the Palestinian cause uh, in this war. And um, the, the, one of the really foolish 
moves here is at the very beginning of this war, the U.S. dispatched these two aircraft carriers uh, off the coast of Lebanon and said, like, if this war spreads, uh, we will protect our, our ally Israel. Um, that creates a terrible moral hazard, right? So, uh, you know, on the one hand, you mentioned Lloyd Austin uh, telling uh, the Israelis not to provoke um, not to provoke Hezbollah, but on the other hand, the United States has given uh, Israel a blank check. Has basically said, "Well, if you know, if this goes off as your extremist right wingers want it to, we'll be there for you. Don't worry, we've got your back." Um, and that is not how you de-escalate, uh, uh, you know, a regional war that's on the brink of breaking out. Right? That is how you pour fuel on the fire and and guarantee that your most reckless clients. Uh, understand that the real message is, uh, you know, this is your time. Uh, if you want to take on as many of your adversaries as you can, we will express ship uh, the, the the bombs you want to drop, um, and and we'll be there to to shoot down incoming missiles and otherwise provide for your security. Well, Hamas started this on October seventh. They provoked Israel with that disgraceful and brutal butchery of Israeli civilians. There's a deliberate strategy, and and they've become incredibly popular in the Arab world and and amongst the Palestinians as a result. So what's their end game? Why did they do what they did? And the, and the question is, what does a reasonable response to Hamas look like? Um, and this is where uh, uh, critics, critics of Israeli uh, misconduct often have trouble answering that question is as if uh, Israel is if the other alternative is for Israel to do nothing. Right. And, um, you know, yes, it's important that we uh, remember the context. It's very important that we uh, that we remember that the lack of a political process uh, has foreclosed alternatives to eliminationist violence. But uh, Hamas is an eliminationist group uh, that uh, that is they are actually anti-Semitic in their rhetoric and beliefs and credo. Uh, they are war criminals. Um, they are not uh, leaders of a uh, sort of uh, benign liberation movement that's somehow reluctantly been forced into into terrible violence. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in reality, any Israeli response, no matter how enlightened, no matter how respectful of civilian human life is going to require the use of a lot of force. Uh, this is a, you know, this is an adversary uh, that is not interested in coexistence, right? This isn't Fatah, this isn't the PA, this isn't Yasser Arafat, it's Hamas in 2024 now. Uh, and uh, a, real, a, a real Israeli response is going to be a security response, first and foremost. Um, and unfortunately, we're at a moment where there is not a uh, a viable functioning Palestinian um, political movement that can that can lead an alternative uh, political process, and that's um, now that that conundrum is largely the doing of uh, cynical Israeli and international policies and politics that uh, you know made it impossible for uh, legitimate political movements to to flourish. But now we are where we are. Uh, and what I see for the foreseeable future in the best case scenario is a long running counterterrorism 
practice against um, Hamas and Palestine by Israel. And again, in the best case scenario, that response focuses on actual malefactors and not on the population as a whole. And in the best case scenario, we find a way to prevent things like today's strike in uh, in Beirut uh, fr- uh, from spiraling into a regional war. But we're not going to end up in some scenario where we get a uh, an effective political process that replaces conflict uh, and that sort of absorbs Hamas and the Israeli right into some kind of uh, sequel to, to the Oslo peace process. Uh, and, and I am worried that in general, we're not going to get even this sort of bad best case scenario I'm describing. We're going to get a worst case scenario, right, which is maximalists on both sides. So, you know, Ham- Hamas on October 7th, among other things, was representing a really maximalist eliminationist viewpoint, right? I mean, those people who who uh, broke into Israel from Gaza uh, did not consider anybody a civilian, right? They were they were indiscriminately killing any person they saw. Uh, Israeli, they were they were uh, they killed Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. They were they were killing indiscriminately, um, and that uh, I think uh, when the dust settles from the war in Gaza, uh, uh, people. Uh, we'll have to remember people, critics of Israel as well as supporters of Israeli policy, will have to remember that that is a legitimately terrifying uh, threat to confront. And you can't just wave it away by saying, well, Israel has bad policies that that, that compounded uh, the wrongs of the situation. Um, and there is not a really obvious to me political uh, process to, uh, you know, to address the, the conditions that that lead to this kind of this kind of violence. Well, Thanasi Kambanis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sanafi Kanbanis, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Center for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he worked as a journalist based in Lebanon, and his books include A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the well-funded movement underway to tear down Thomas Jefferson's wall between church and state. ولو ولو هيك بتطلعوا منا ولو ما تعودوا تسألوا عنا Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Collins, Professor of Legal Studies and Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose research focuses on understanding bias and inequality in the American legal system, particularly in the behavior of actors like judges, legislators, presidents, the media, and interest groups. His books include Friends of the Supreme Court, Interest Groups and Judicial Decision-Making, Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change, and The President and the Supreme Court, Going Public on Judicial Decisions from Washington to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Collins. Thank you so much, Ian. It's great to speak with you. 
Well, thanks and Happy New Year to you. And as we enter this uh, critical year of 2024, and it seems that this extraordinarily effective person, Leonard Leo, who's literally stacked the Supreme Court and turned it into a ultra-conservative supermajority, along with much of the federal judiciary as well, is not resting on his laurels. He has $1.6 billion in the bank, which he wants to spend on his causes, which are largely to do with moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism and unleashing billionaires at the same time imposing a kind of extremely conservative form of Catholicism on the rest of us. And now it seems that they have targeted a Christian school in Oklahoma to make it a test case to get to the Supreme Court to overturn the very nature of the First Amendment separation of church and state. So this is incredibly alarming, but again, under the radar, which is how Leonard Leo operates. That's right. Uh, Leonard Leo is probably the most powerful person in American law that most people have never heard of. And this case in Oklahoma, should it get to the United States Supreme Court, will provide you know a, a really watershed moment to essentially eliminate uh, the separation of church and state. But this is a part of a pattern of what they call Supreme Court shopping, isn't it? Where you know, Citizens United was shopped so that they could make a decision that they wanted to make. And they found this obscure documentary made by this right-wing political activist about Hillary Clinton. And God knows, <laughs> no underestimating the extraordinary impact of that decision, which was shopped. To, and again, the overturning of the, or the reversal of the meaning of the Second Amendment in the Heller case, that was also shopped. So this is how they operate, isn't it? They they get stuff to the Supreme Court knowing that it's going to change the law in massive ways and that they've got a, a sympathetic ear with the justices. That's exactly right. So the conservative legal movement kind of uses a multi-pronged strategy to get its preferences etched into law by the Supreme Court. As you noted, one of the things that they do is set up these test cases, like the, like the case in Oklahoma, and they'll, you'll provide counsel who are going to make arguments that conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court will, will find sympathetic, and they'll appeal these cases and fund the appeals of these cases all the way up to the Supreme Court. One of the other major prongs of this strategy is to get judges on the bench that will be sympathetic to their arguments. And really that's where Leonard Leo has shined. He's had a role in the appointment of all six of the United States Supreme Court's conservative justices. So let's talk about this Oklahoma case, which is on its way uh, to the Supreme Court in as much as the state of Oklahoma has approved uh, this Roman Catholic archdiocese um, push to create St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School. The state has approved it as a charter school in June. It has to survive a legal challenge, but then that opens the door for it across the country, in effect, for direct taxpayer funding 
of Christian or other non-public schools. That's right. This is a, a really important case that pits two of the religious provisions in the First Amendment against one another. So on the one hand, most of the precedent that we're familiar with that prevents the government from, for example, funding a Catholic school comes out of Establishment Clause jurisprudence, which, which basically says, you know, that it's not okay for the government to establish a national religion, but also to prefer religion over non-religion or a particular type of religion over other types of religion. And that's being pitted against the free exercise clause. Um, and, and this is where the United States Supreme Court's conservative justices, they're very interested in the free exercise clause. And the idea is that if you don't allow governments to fund, for example, a, a Catholic charter school, you're basically discriminating against the religion. And this is the argument that the, the, the Catholic schools lawyers are going to be making. This is the argument that conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court are very sympathetic to. So. Isn't there also a kind of confluence here with the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who is not obviously an Opus Dei Catholic like Leonard Leo and many of the, we don't know exactly because it's a secretive organization, Opus Dei, but how many on the Supreme Court and within the government are, are a part of this network. But nevertheless, it does seem that the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is very much on the same page as Leonard Leo in these efforts to get rid of the Thomas Jefferson's wall between the church and state. He's an ardent follower of this quack historian uh, who has a lot of influence over him, uh, who has reinterpreted what happened back in when the founders came up with the, with the First Amendment, which was obviously due to the fact that they in their lifetime and experienced the sort of witch burning and the fanaticism uh, that led many of these religious cults after the religious wars in Europe to come to America and impose a kind of very austere form of Christianity. So that's the history and the environment in which the founders like Jefferson, who was a deist, were concerned they wanted to protect the state from religion. But these people like Leonard Leo and, and Mike Johnson want to protect religion from the state. That's exactly right. Um, the speaker, Leonard Leo, and a variety of other very prominent conservatives, both in the legal and the political worlds, are all involved in this revisionist history of what the separation of church and state means. and. Leo in particular has been successful at getting justices on the Supreme Court and judges in, in other important positions in the federal judicial system 
to subscribe to this sort of revisionist version of what the separation of church and state means. And, you know, if you look at recent decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, um, allowing vouchers to go to religious schools um, on the grounds that if you don't allow that, you're basically discriminating against religious schools. You can see the likely outcome of this case will be in favor of the Catholic charter school. So there's a very interesting article which you quoted in Paul Collins at Politico. Public Christian schools, question mark, Leonard Leo's allies advance a new cause, which mentions some of the, quotes some of the stuff that Leo has said at, at you know, various meetings that he's had with his fellow religious conservatives. And he believes, apparently, that Christians are under siege, with Catholics in particular facing threats of violence. And he's called for a new evangelization in response. And just to quote Leo, No question, Catholicism faces vile and immoral current-day barbarians, secularists and bigots. These barbarians can be known by their signs. They vandalized and burned our churches after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Leo said in a 2022 John Paul II New Evangelization Awards ceremony, from coast to coast, they are conducting a coordinated and large-scale campaign to drive us from the communities they want to dominate. So, I mean, what's he talking about? This is a straw man. You know, the Catholic Church is not under attack. I mean, it has its own problems, which is brought upon itself with, you know, sexual predators and paying out for all kinds of disgraceful behavior on the part of priests. What's he talking about? I, I'm not sure. So, so, and, and I don't mean to be uh, dismissive, but I, like you, I don't see the evidence that the Catholic Church is under attack, but Leonard Leo clearly believes this, and it's not just Leo that believes this. Um, you know, a justice like Samuel Alito ardently believes that the you know the most prosecuted people in America are white conservative Christian men and so you know Leo's community his conservative legal movement has really been successful at convincing people in power and people with decision making authority that this is the state of the world and he's going to you know bring cases like this not personally but he's going to be behind the scenes in cases like this trying to etch these preferences into law. So is this a case of kind of projection where you act like you're a martyr and you're a beleaguered and you're under attack and under threat, when in fact the opposite is true, that you are probably the most powerful political figure and kingmaker in the entire country. You've already stacked the Supreme Court. You've got $1.6 billion in your kitty to spend on ultra-conservative political causes, and now that you've shaped the federal judiciary to your liking, you're now going to go after the legislature with the help of Mike Johnson. So, I mean, this is an, um, amazing to think that anybody falls for this. This guy is an incredibly powerful person, and he's acting like he's under threat and that the world is out to get him when he's out to change the world. Absolutely. I, I think some of this is motivated by him raising money, right? He's a fundraiser. And so by raising this alarm bell 
um, whether it's true or not, I think he's been very successful at getting, you know, this this what we call dark money, right? This th- these donations that we can't really track to any individual or corporation or whatever the donor may be. But I also think that he may really believe this stuff. Um, you know, the way that he sounds, if you hear him talk, he seems like a true believer, just like Justice Alito seems like a true believer with respect to his positions on matters of, of the separation of church and state. So what can be done then to stop this? Because these people are serious. They've already been successful in Supreme Court shopping and getting major tectonic decisions passed that have changed our politics like Citizens United and Heller, which is, you know, you can literally trace the epidemic of mass shootings that happen on a daily basis in this country to the Heller decision. And now they're about to undo undo the First Amendment, which is really pretty fundamental to the nature of American democracy. There's not a ton that can be done right now absent some really structural change to the United States Supreme Court. And so, you know, the court has basically stepped so outside of public opinion that we're now seeing the repercussions of what this means. For example, that it has the lowest public approval in modern history. Um, And so there's no question that the court's losing its legitimacy, but trying to stop something like this on a case-by-case basis is exceptionally difficult when you have a court stacked with six conservatives, all of whom, by the way, pretty much believe in the positions that folks like Leonard Leo are advocating for. So you're leaving us on a note of despair here, are you, Paul? Unfortunately, I am. Right. So, you know, in other words, the only chance is they're going to do this right. And the only way to stop them is to change the Supreme Court. And that'll take a while. It will take a very long time. And we probably need to get rid of life tenure for Supreme Court justices and make other important changes. But it's very hard to stop something like this, um, given the level of commitment that the Supreme Court justices seem to have to this particular philosophy. And the enormous financial backing with which Leonard Leo operates. That's right. I, I mean, you know, when, when folks ask why, you know, Clarence Thomas, for example, is so networked into this community and, and what do people get for, for these, you know, um, these lavish gifts they bestow upon him, I think the answer is pretty simple. They get consistency, right? And so when you have six Supreme Court justices that are very well connected to the conservative legal movement, it's constantly reinforced, right? I believe them when they say that they're not talking about individual cases with these powerful people like Leonard Leo, but by being in their presence, they're constantly reminded of what they're supposed to do, which is etch the conservative agenda into law. Well, Paul Collins, I thank you for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I may speak with Paul Collins, who's a professor of legal studies and political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose research focused on understanding bias and inequality in the American legal system, particularly in the behavior of actors like judges, legislators, presidents, the media, and interest groups. His books include Friends of the Supreme Court, Interest Groups and Judicial Decision-Making, Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change, and The President and the Supreme Court, Going Public on Judicial Decisions from Washington to Trump. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the frightening similarities between Germany in the early 1930s and the U.S. in 2024. In Catholic school, as vicious as Roman rule, I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. And I held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. And if heaven and hell decide that they... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Benjamin Carter-Hett, a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of Burning the Reichstag, Crossing Hitler, and Death in the Tiergarten, and The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power, and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, How Hitler Took the World into War. His latest book is The Nazi Menace, Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin, and The Road to War. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, 2024 could be the year America fends off dictatorship or invites it in. Welcome to Background Briefing, Benjamin Hett. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us in uh, this uh, new year of 2024, which will certainly be a critical year in American history, I think, by all measures. That's not hyperbole. And your article at the Los Angeles Times uh, says, and of course, we're talking about it in the context of warnings from people like Liz Cheney saying that we are sleepwalking into dictatorship, that the Germans in 1930 didn't think they were voting for a dictatorship or another war or genocide. So how much is, if you assume that the MAGA world is at best about 35% of the country, then that would suggest in Liz Cheney's terms that 65% of the country is sleepwalking into dictatorship. What you wrote about the Germans in 1930, does that apply to the U.S.? People, when they vote in November, they will not think they're voting for dictatorship if they vote for Trump? Well, that's that's a great and somewhat complicated question. And I guess my view is is a little bit down the middle. I mean, on the one hand, certainly, yes. I, I don't think there's any doubt now, and I tried to make this clear in the article, that if you listen to the kinds of things that Trump is saying these days, or if you listen to things that people around him who would be a part of the future Trump administration, if you look at what they're talking about in planning, I think any debate about whether Trump is a fascist or in any case, some kind of extreme nationalist authoritarian, that debate's over. Uh, Trump clearly has nothing but contempt for American democracy, for the constitution, for the plurality and, and diversity that has always been the strength of American society. And he will do his level best uh, to usher in a, a dictatorship. And I think probably most Americans aren't really alive to that yet. I am cautiously optimistic that by the time the election campaign is in full swing in the summer and fall of this year, uh, which I quite agree with you, uh, this will absolutely be a a crucially historically faithful year. I hope when the election campaign is in full swing, um, the, this, this brutally authoritarian element of Trump's thinking and planning will be evident, uh, I hope, to enough voters to ensure that he doesn't get another term. But there is a, an analogy there, isn't there, with the 
number of Germans that supported the Nazis uh, back in '33 compared to the number of people that support Trump. Uh, there is absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the number is actually rather striking. I mean, the best, um, the best that the Nazis ever did in a fully free election was a little bit over one third of the electorate uh, in Germany. Uh, and you know, it, by all, I think, uh, reliable estimates, that's about what Trump's base is. Um, and of course with our election system, with the various ways in which a popular majority can be frustrated via the electoral college and so on, uh, or perhaps via voting restrictions in some States that could potentially be enough. Um, so I think it's important that what I'm confident is the great majority of Americans who want to keep living in a democracy, I think it's important that they be alive to what the danger is. But there's no indication that the Republican Party, uh, whatever's left of its elder statesmen or establishment, and now they're called derisively called rhinos, and even other institutions like the Chamber of Commerce and, of course, the Supreme Court, is there any indication that they're aware of where we might be heading with Trump? In other words, the German industrialists, from what history that I've read, sort of thought that Hitler was kind of a crazy guy, but he might be good for business because he was going to crack down on the unions. Is it, What's happening in terms of the only way to stop the far right is the center right. And I'm not sure there's much of a center right left in America. I think you're right about that, uh, at least in some respects. Um, I mean, to take these elements in turn, uh, the Republican Party at the moment, I think, is close to completely hopeless in terms of trying to stop any authoritarianism from Trump. I mean, Trump has really, I'm hardly the first to say this, he's really made the party his own. Um, anyone who stands for a moderate conservatism uh, you know, beyond uh, authoritarianism has basically been driven out or silenced within the party by Trump and by his supporters. So what's left, I think you have a residue of people who are uh, actively enthusiastic for the authoritarianism that Trump would bring, or, and I suspect this is the majority of uh, Republican uh, Congress people and senators, they're simply too weak and too cowardly to wish to stand against it and see preserving their own power um, going along with Trump is the way to preserve their own power. Now, in terms of other elements, I'm a little less sure. I have still some, perhaps uh, unfounded, but still some cautious optimism that faced with certain key decisions, uh, the Supreme Court, a majority at least of the Supreme Court, would still side with the Constitution and with the preservation of democracy. At least up until now, even the court, as Trump left it, has shown no appetite for supporting his crazier ideas. So that may, uh, the Supreme Court may end up playing an important role depending how things shake out. And business too, I'm, I'm not so sure that uh, business doesn't see the dangers of Trump. I mean, we've seen some things lately, like for instance, the Koch brothers funding Nikki Haley, I think is an example of at least one element of, uh, of big business wealth and power recognizing the problem of Trump and trying to find uh, some kind of conservative alternative. Not that I'm going to go uh, too much into enthusiasm for, for Nikki Haley, but if I had to pick between her and Trump, I would certainly pick her. Well, that is probably, ironically, why Trump may be the best possible candidate Biden could run against, right? 
That's right. That's a, a risky but probably right strategy. I, I have a hunch, and it's just a hunch, and I don't claim to be a, a great pundit on American politics, but I have a hunch that uh, uh, Biden would lose quite soundly to pretty much any Republican other than Trump. And I think Trump probably has has built up so many defects in, in the minds of a lot of Americans with his just general craziness and incompetence as a, an executive and so on, that he might be the one Republican who's beatable for Biden. It's going to be a close election, though, I'm sure, one way or another. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's not Trump's defects, sadly, are not so evident to so many people that the election will be the slam dunk that if it were up to me, it certainly would be. So the Nazis, of course, were all about violence, and particularly when you're further on from the 33, for example, the Night of the Long Knives, etc. So clearly Trump also uses violence and intimidation because anybody that crosses him, their political career is over and quite often their lives are threatened. And even lately, the judges who took him off the ballot in Colorado and Maine are being threatened. So... What analogies there could you offer up in terms of the use of violence, which Trump clearly uh, meets out, even though he tries to deny it? It's pretty obvious. Yeah, there is a bit of an analogy. I, I think um, the uh, the history professor in me, uh, I feel I have to say that I, I wouldn't want to necessarily take that analogy too far quite yet, uh, because certainly the Nazis were far more... Um, comprehensively ready, willing, and able to use violence in the pursuit of their political goals. If you look at Germany in the early 1930s, there was really a civil war happening between uh, the Nazis' paramilitary wing, the stormtroopers, and anyone who was a political opponent of the Nazis. And there was a scale of violence far beyond anything we've seen in the United States up to this point. That said, um, there are the things out there in the kind of Trump world which could evolve into something that would look um, quite a bit like the Nazis in even the early 1930s before they were actually in power. Uh, you know, January 6th, of course, is a bit of a foretaste of that. And some of the you know organizations involved in January 6th, some of the uh, Trump-leaning you know militia groups, the Proud Boys and so on, they are more than a little... Uh, reminiscent of the Nazis stormtroopers as a sort of organized, um, you know, political force, very ready, willing and able to use violence to support their chosen uh, political leader and political ideology. So that's a danger that's lurking out there. But more, I think, at the moment as a potential rather than uh, that we've arrived at something that really right now looks like what Germany looked like and what the Nazis looked like, say, in 1930 or 1932. Well, you do quote, of course, Gavin Wax, the leader of the New York Young Republicans, who used some of Goebbels' language, proclaiming uh, that we want total war. Once President Trump is back in office, we won't be playing nice anymore. It will be time for retribution. And of course, Trump himself has used retribution. I am your retribution. He's also said recently, talking about his uh, enemies being vermin, and in your article, you quote that the Nazis promised that they would, quote, exterminate the noxious communist brood root and branch, and just as one kills off rats and bugs. So there's not much doubt about uh, Trump's language echoing or channeling Hitler. 
No, absolutely. There, the parallel is is sadly uh, spot on. I mean, the the kind of rhetorical violence that Trump is putting out and that some of his surrogates and supporters are putting out uh, is unfortunately, uncannily, remarkably, virtually word for word, as you've indicated, um, the kind of language that Hitler and the Nazis used in the particularly in the early 1930s as they were rising uh, to power. And, you know, what I think is sort of interesting about Trump is I am pretty sure that he absolutely lacks the historical knowledge to be aware of this. But he's kind of instinctively somehow out of his own character. He has found his way to a language which is such a remarkable, pretty much word for word echo of the kind of language um, that Hitler and Hitler supporters used um, as they were rising to power in the early 30s. So there's a famous quote, of course, from Pastor Niemöller, who was one of the few German religious figures to stand up to Hitler, saying, you know, the first they come for the communists and then they come for, you know, runs through a list and then eventually says, and then they'll come for you. Yes. Now, he was a minority voice, was he not? Uh, he absolutely was a minority voice. And by the way, not much of an opponent of Hitler in the earlier days. Uh, Niebuhr is an interesting case. He was uh, um, very nationalist, very patriotic, very conservative. Um, uh, and it took him a while to sort of differentiate himself from Hitler. He got there eventually, certainly, and spent uh, the years, if I recall correctly, from 37 to the end of the war in a concentration camp. Um, but he was not, you know, anti-Hitler from the beginning. That quote, that famous quote, of which there are several versions and maybe apocryphal, but in any case attributed to him, um, that's a, a retrospective thing, something he said after the war uh, when he had sort of seen the full uh, consequences of the politics of Hitler. Well, I bring it up, um, Ben, because of uh, the fact that the white evangelicals, uh, and they have a very powerful advocate now who's the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. They're buying into Trump in the way that most of the German church bought into Hitler. Yes. Do you think that's a fair analogy? It is a fair analogy. And in fact, there's been quite a lot of interesting historical uh, research on this. Um, it seems um, uh, beyond any argument that the great majority, particularly of German Protestants, uh, lined up more or less enthusiastically with Hitler and more or less from the moment that he came to power. And uh, for instance, my friend, a historian named Richard Steigman Gall has written uh, quite uh, persuasively about this. And uh, one thing that Richard says in his book on the subject is that basically some elements of the Nazi worldview, their nationalism, um, their hatred of democracy and uh, many aspects of the modern world in general lined up uh, pretty neatly with uh, with German Protestantism. There was a real sort of uh, congruence between a basic worldview of German Protestants and the basic worldview of the Nazis um, on things like uh, nationalism, anti-Semitism, anti-feminism, anti-democracy. Um, and so that made them a pretty good fit. And it, it meant that there was a a sort of built-in base of support for the Nazis, particularly among German Protestants, less so among Catholics, interestingly. Uh, but Germany was about two-thirds Protestant in those days, and so that built in a substantial support base for the Nazis. So in the last few minutes then, Ben, let's talk about the support for Trump. I mean, without support, Hitler would have been just some crazy failed artist and architect ranting in a beer hall somewhere, and the same with Mussolini. But the fact that uh, they were able to get m millions of people behind them and 
And if you look at the newsreels of, of Hitler as he drives by and the faces on the crowd, the adoration for him was just, is just frighteningly similar yes. to the adoration for Trump that you see at these rallies. Yes. Um, and for a lot of Americans, myself included, of course, is that you, you cannot believe that anybody takes this cheesy vulgarian seriously. He's such a manifest <laughs> failure and a total incompetent and, and, a, and a joke. Um, but it, nevertheless, it's real. He has, a, has an ardent following. So when you, in your article at the Los Angeles Times, uh, mentioned that the historian Robert Paxton wrote that fascists were marked by their obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood. And the solution for that was purity and internal cleansing and outward expansion pursued with violence and no ethical or legal constraints. So what is it about why white working-class Americans are flocking to Trump? I mean, I understand there's just in general a demographic fear amongst white Americans that being born white no longer simply confers privilege. Yeah, and I think, uh, in a way, I think the key parallel here between you know that demographic in our society and a lot of the support for Hitler... I think the key uh, parallel is the sense of humiliation. Um, however much this may not objectively uh, make sense, I, I do think that the Trump constituency, above all, is a constituency that feels it has been sort of serially humiliated um, by maybe broader majority American society, um, perhaps in the sense that uh, they're sort of suffering a, a gradual status decline uh, both in in real wealth, which which that part is actually true, um, and in a certain kind of social status as compared to decades past, I think um, they look upon a society becoming increasingly diverse and, of course, increasingly uh, less white with immigrants coming in all the time. Um, and they certainly perceive, I think, um, that there are coastal elites who feel nothing but contempt for them and have arranged a society that simply doesn't work for them anymore. And out of all of this, I think there is born a real rage, which is the child of humiliation. And um, I think I, I quote Nelson Mandela in there saying uh, quite correctly, I think, that if someone feels they've been humiliated, then that's going to be the trigger for a really powerful response. Because if I feel you've humiliated you, there may be just about no limit in what I'm willing to do back to you. And I think to try to understand the rage that is behind the support for Trump, because to me, what's really striking is the rage that Trump supporters feel towards those they consider to be their enemies. Um, I think the rage is rooted in a pervasive sense of humiliation, um, you know, born of really kind of a feel of declining status, of feeling that they've lost their place in in the country. So just in closing then, let's not leave the audience on this uh, <laughs> second day of 2024. Is there any sense that everything that we're talking about will not come to pass? Well, uh, one of the things I wanted to say in the article uh, is that, you know, while I don't want to minimize the danger of what Trump, uh, you know, stands for and what he could do if he gets into power, I also do not feel that unmitigated doom and gloom is called for, because I, I, I do very much think, as, you know, a lifelong student of history, 
that America in 2024, I almost said 2023, America in 2024 is not Germany in 1933. It's a very different society. And above all, we're a society in which um, individualism is a really strongly held value and that will work against any kind of authoritarian government. I think we have, you know, uh, almost two and a half centuries of experience with uh, constitutional representative government, and we have been a, a full-on democracy since most people got enfranchised in the uh, mid-1960s. Democracy is really deep in our bones. Individualism is deep in our bones. For most of us, I think, an abhorrence of authoritarianism is very deep in our bones. Uh, America is a big, diverse country with a lot of different centers of power, which I don't think any one federal you know, government or, uh, or president could ever really get a grasp of. So I do not think that we are going to end up in a situation where living in America is like living in Nazi Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union or even today's Russia or today's Hungary. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going that way. But to not go that way, we do have to be as citizens vigilant and we all have to do our bit to stand against the people who would, if they could, make this into an authoritarian country. Well, Benjamin Cardhead, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Benjamin Hett, who's a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of Burning the Reichstag, Crossing Hitler and Death in the Tiergarten and The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, How Hitler Took the World into War. And his latest book is The Nazi Menace, Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin and the Road to War. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, 2024 could be the year America fends off dictatorship or invites it in. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.